Heavenly Father, we do pray that in tumultuous, unprecedented, difficult times, as we battle not only a pandemic, Lord, that we haven't seen before, but also the tension and the difficulty happening throughout our country. Lord, we pray that we would cling to You, the Rock of Ages, the One who is our support, our ever-present help in time of need. And as we open Your Word today, Lord, we pray that You would remind us again of the hope that we have in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, I hope you have them with you somewhere around you or your app on the phone and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're actually going to finish 1 Peter today. We're going to finish up this series of messages. Let me just say um, that we are really excited about next weekend. Um, I'm excited about the message God has laid on my heart today leading into next weekend. And we are excited about what's happening as we begin to come back together. We realize that many of you that are watching today may not feel comfortable uh, coming back next weekend, and we fully understand that. And we will continue to do what we're doing here on Sunday morning at 1030. But next weekend, we're going to begin to come back together. And so let me again tell you about those two times. We're going to okay, just worship next week, 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning at 1030. 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoon is our family worship. Um, it's going to be a time that will be high energy. We're encouraging our families to come. Uh, our families will sit together because of our social distancing guidelines. Families will sit together. We will have all that kind of worked out. We've been working through that plan to make sure we are in compliance with all of that. But we're excited about being back together. It's going to be fun. We're going to talk about um, the fruit of the Spirit over the course of the summer in that service. And we're really, I'm really excited about that. To talk about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. About what the fruit is that comes out of the life of a believer. Um, the, on Sunday mornings at 10.30 will be a service that looks very much like what you see here. What we've been doing for the last few weeks. What we were doing before that with our full band and worshiping together. And over the course of the summer in that service, we're going to be tackling the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be spending the summer on the Mount, if you will, and talking about what Jesus taught there. Now, Here's why I'm excited about both of those series. Both of those, and there are going to be two separate distinct series, and so if you want to come to both, come to both, all right? Uh, come on Saturday night for family, then come on Sunday morning. Both of those are natural outflows of application from what we've talked about in First Peter. First Peter continually tells us that we ought to live in a different way so that the world asks about the hope that we have. And both the Sermon on the Mount and the Fruit of the Spirit give us pictures of what that looks like. So make sure you're ready for that next week. We're excited about that. Also announced this week, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, we're going to begin getting our youth together on Sunday evenings. Um, their normal Zoom hangout is going to take place in person um, out at the pavilion when we're going to be beginning that process. We're in deep discussions about how exactly we're going to do VBS this year, which we're really excited about. That second week of July, we have some, some awesome opportunities to, to do that in a way that's unique, but also is going to be able to be a great VBS. And so be listening for, looking for all of that information coming out real soon. The second thing I want to tell you about real quickly is our day of extravagant giving, which actually starts today. 
It starts today online or through mail. You can mail things in. But we usually take up a day of extravagant giving offering for our summer camps and mission trips. Well, all of those have been canceled for this summer because of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result, we are refocusing that day of extravagant giving offering for three purposes. One is the North American Mission Board, which supports missionaries throughout the United States, Canada, and Mexico as they spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those groups. That group had their major mission offering happen right in the middle of the pandemic. Because of that, they're expecting a shortfall on the offering that is a majority of their budget for the year. And so we're going to give a portion of our day of extravagant giving directly to the North American Mission Board for that. Secondly, they know that there are lots of small businesses in our area that have been adversely affected in major ways because of the shutdowns. We, through the Goodlettsville Ministerial Alliance, have worked together with the city of Goodlettsville to help to take care of those needs in some ways, in some tangible, practical ways. And so some of our offering is going to go that direction. And then lastly, we as a church are continually helping people, if we can, that are in need. We use the help center in town, but also there are times that needs come up within our church or we know of needs that we want to help. And so part of that offering will go to restore some of what needs to be restored in our benevolence fund. Usually we take those offerings up um, at the end of days of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We're missing two of those days through the pandemic, and so we want to supply that. So make sure you give online or you mail your check-in, or if you're here next week, you can drop it in the offering box uh, with that special offering marked on it. 1 Peter chapter 5. As we begin 1 Peter chapter 5, I just want to remind us about what the entire book has been about. Woven throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter is this repeated call for a condition of the heart and a way of life that makes sense only if we have a firm belief in a great reward that is coming to us after this life. Peter calls believers again and again to think and feel and act in ways that can only be explained by an unshakable faith and an all-satisfying hope that comes after this life. If you remember, Peter is writing to people that are under severe persecution for their faith. People that were at the threat of being arrested or beaten. In fact, he tells them at one point about the fact that if they withstand those kind of things for the glory of God, it is a benefit to them. That there were people that were under threat of being pulled out of their homes because of their faith. Of being put to shame in public or even killed in public. And he says to them these crazy things in the midst of that. For these people that are trying to protect their life, he says, rejoice in the fact that you're suffering. Be excited about the fact that God has chosen you worthy to suffer with him. He tells them to not repay evil for evil, to not do that. He tells them to submit in various ways. He tells them to live a life that only makes sense if there's something beyond this life where a reward will come. And so what kind of reward is he talking about? Well, he's not particularly talking about material wealth. He's not particularly talking about a pain-free, healthy lifestyle or a reunion with loved ones or a perfect leisurely life or even productivity that is not futility-filled. He's specifically talking about the fact that our reward is being in and around and with the Lord forever. There's a verse that we kind of we didn't skip over, but we kind of we kind of walk through quickly that's right in the middle of 1 Peter 
chapter 3. It's verse 18. This isn't going to be on your screen because it's not there, but it's something you can look back in in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that. So whatever comes after that is important. It says Christ came, He died, the righteous one died for our sins once for all. And He says that, this is the reason, the purpose, this is the whole meaning of it. He says that He might, that's Jesus might bring you, that's you and me, that's us, that's the readers, that's the church He was talking to, to God. What He says is that the reward we have is an assurance that because of what Christ has done in His death on the cross, the blood that covered us, the inheritance that He has given us, primarily means that we will spend eternity with God in heaven. Yes, where perfection is, where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is this blessing that we cannot even imagine at this moment, where there is this perfect rest that comes only in Him, where we are reunited with loved ones, where we do have a task to do and the frustration is taken out of it. But at the center of it is that we will be with the Lord forever. Praise be to God. I don't know about you, but 2020 has not turned out like I expected it to turn out. Most of you know that have been around at all. I'm a huge sports fan, and we haven't had sports for several weeks now, and the ones that are that I really care about apparently are several weeks away if they ever get figured out how they're going to pay each other. About this time of year, I was just thinking we'd be talking about I'd be thinking about in the sports world. I'd be thinking about the Olympics coming up and thinking about how my Cardinals are doing and thinking about how uh, recruiting has gone and all of that. He's getting ready for college football and all that. Some of that's still on the horizon and none of that being lost is the most significant thing that has happened. But in the midst of all of this that has happened, in the midst of pandemic and concern and worry and walking through grocery stores with directional arrows and people in masks and hearing the horror stories of things that have happened and people that I know having died from this disease and then the, um, the racial tension that has been in our country in recent days. And as all of that builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, I find myself again and again and again saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. I am ready for the Lord to return. And Peter writes in this and says, there is coming a day and we have to live in the midst of it as if we know without a shadow of a doubt because we do that it's coming. And in chapter 5, he wraps up everything. And this is what I want to focus on. There. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to go back and talk about a couple of points in it. What he basically says is, let me tell you a couple of things about you, let me tell you a couple of things about God, and then I want you to live in a certain way because of it. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as the one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are hungry, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are believing, being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. First thing that I want us to see in this passage is what it says about us. And you have to kind of look into this and the descriptions it gives of us because it doesn't say, hey, here's who you are, but it gives us an idea of what's happening. Here's a, a, a quick synopsis, an overview of what this particular passage says about us as believers, us as human beings, and it is that we are susceptible sheep living in a sinful world. Susceptible sheep living in a sinful world. Let me just tell you right off the bat that verses 1 through 4 are very convicting and challenging for me personally. Because it is written specifically to the leader of the congregation, the elders, the staff, if you will, the, the, the pastoral staff, the leadership of the church. And it gives me some certain things that I must do as I lead, commands for me as I lead you as the congregation to which God has entrusted to me. It tells me that I have to be willing, not, not under obligation, not, not feel like it's a job, really, that it's a passion, it's a calling, it's something that I long to do. I remember when I was just getting into ministry, I, um, I, went, I met my, fa- my future father-in-law. I didn't know at that time he was going to be my father-in-law. He was just the pastor of the church I was attending at that time. And I met him one day and was talking with him and had a conversation. And I just said, all right, so I'm going to be a pastor. You've been doing this for many years. If you could give me one piece of advice, what would it be? And I remember he looked at me and he said, if you can do anything else but pastor, do it. If there's anything in your life that you think you could do and be happy other than pastoring, do that. He said, because pastoring is more than just a job. It's a calling and it is a passion that has to come from your life. So this, this passage challenges me to be willing and to have that passion. It tells me to show by example. It tells me to do it for the glory of God, not for money, not for gain, but lead by example for the glory of God and for the good of the people to whom God has called me to pastor. It calls me to shepherd the flock. I just find it interesting that in the Bible, one of the most frequent descriptions of the people of God is that we're called sheep. Even in this passage, he calls us the, the church, the flock. He calls the leader the shepherd. It's, it's got great track record throughout the Bible. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are sheep 
in need of a shepherd, including me. And even though I am the shepherd of this flock, I shepherd under the great shepherd as described here in this passage. Remember growing up, my pastor, brother uh, Buddy Boston, used to always use the phrase under-shepherd. I'm the under-shepherd. And that's not a word you hear a lot, but it just reiterated the fact that he was leading us as a church under the authority of the shepherd. Psalm 23 reminds us that the Lord is our shepherd. So what does it mean that we're called sheep? What does it mean even in this passage that he calls us the flock? Well, I think, and we'll get to this in a minute, it's in contrast to what he's going to do in just a moment. But it also reminds us that in Scripture, when it talks about us being sheep, that's not necessarily a compliment. Sheep are not, in their natural habitat, cute, cuddly animals. They are dirty. They stink. They're susceptible to pests and lice and ticks. Constantly have to take care of them. They are not able to take care of themselves really well. I don't know if you've seen this picture of a sheep that was roaming around for years and they finally came back into civilization and just the amount of wool that he had was unbelievable. He can't take care of himself like he needs to be taken care of. They are animals that have to be taken care of. They're not smart. They will aimlessly wander around without leadership. And so when he says that we are a flock of sheep He implies that we are aimless, wandering, dirty, dumb sheep. All of us. That we are people that need leadership. We need to be led. He also tells us throughout chapter 5 that we live in the midst of a sinful world. He, uh, He talks about the fact that we all have to humble ourselves. That we can't be proud. He quotes right there that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The reality is we live in a fallen, sinful world. Last night in the midst of all that was going on, I was following a lot of the information on Twitter through various sources from places around the country. And I don't even know where it was, and I couldn't tell you who said it, but somebody just tweeted and said, if Adam had only known that one bite would cause this much. Now I know some of you would say, well, Adam wasn't the one that took the first bite, that was Eve, and that's true. But in Romans, when it gets to talking about who is to blame for it, it does blame Adam. So theologically, some of you would get upset with that. The chaos earlier in the week. I thought about the sinfulness that is behind all of that. And I couldn't help but think of the fact that we live in a fallen world. A dangerous world. And the idea here is what he's saying, I think he is setting up in chapter 5, is this idea that we are a flock of sheep in a very dangerous environment. This is not some rolling meadows with a stream beside it. This is not some place where it is easy and we can relax. That this is a difficult place. We are sheep in a sinful world. And because of that, the world is suffering. Suffering all around us. But he also says that we are susceptible on all sides, mainly because 
We have an enemy that is out there to get us. Verse 8 tells us to be sober-minded, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So here's the picture. It's a flock. The idea literally is that he is giving this image of a pastor leading a church through a dangerous, sinful, fallen world. In the midst of it, there is a lion, a group of lions even, prowling around trying to intimidate. The phrase here actually does mean that. It means it can be devour or intimidate with his roar. I can't think of much mismatch that would be greater than a lion and a sheep. Not a ram, but a sheep. The idea here is that we do have an enemy of our souls that's entire purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we look at the world in which we live, we must look past the lens of the physical into the spiritual world to understand that much of what we see is a battle that is happening in the spiritual realm. In fact, uh, Paul would say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and those forces. And then we have an enemy that's after our soul. There's lots of information coming out about the, the oh, by the way, the protests that were peaceful that turned violent when other elements were added. Seems to be the case in almost every place. Now, if you listen to one side of the political spectrum, they'll blame a radical group on the other side. If you listen to the other side of the political spectrum, they'll blame a radical group on the, on the opposite side. Regardless, there seems to be some evidence that there are instigators that are beginning this. And here's what I want you to know. As a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what we know. That the instigators are being instigated by the evil one. That whatever evil is happening in our world has an instigator underneath it. And he is the devil. Prowling around like a roaring lion looking at whom he might devour. One of my favorite things when I go to the zoo is to see the lions. Uh, Disappointed when I go to the National Zoo, almost every time I they don't have lions. A couple of years ago, we were in Memphis on spring break, just for kind of a day visit, and they have lions, and went there and stood and watched at their magnificent creatures. And as they got up and kind of walked around, always since, always since, that as I'm standing there looking at lions in whatever zoo I might be in, there's a part of the lion that is staring at me, sizing me up. And the only reason that I have any comfort at all is because there is something between me and the lion. Like if I was just out in a natural habitat, if I walked out into my backyard this afternoon and a lion was standing there, I would not feel comfortable standing around and watching. But in that moment, there's a barrier that I hope and assume they've tested to be large enough to keep me from the lion. Otherwise, it would be an intimidating situation. 
So when you think about the picture that's presented here of us, it is not a very encouraging picture. Sheep, some of those helpless animals in the world, in a sinful fallen world, being looked at and circled by a lion. And so in the midst of that, the question becomes, how do we survive? Well, that's where he tells us about who God is. And this is the truth that we must understand. God will never fail us. God will never fail us. He gives us three things that God will do for us in the midst of this. First of all, he tells us that he will bear our burdens. Verse 7 says, casting all your cares on Him because He cares about you. The word cast there literally means to throw onto something. And literally there's a, there's a scene in the New Testament when Jesus, it says, throws something onto a donkey, throws a coat onto the donkey. The same word is used here as there. It is literally to lay at, to throw it, to, to get rid of it. I like to think of the word cast when you think about casting when you're fishing, you literally throw something out there to, to cast it, to land on something, to land on the water, to land right in the water. It, the idea is to get rid of it out of your possession onto something else. The way that a lot of people handle their past, their worries, their guilt, their shame, their sin is one of two ways. Either one, they just deny it ever happened and they try to move on and they don't do anything about it or they live with regret their entire life about what's happening. This says there is a third and better way, a better way to deal with that, and that is to cast it on him, and he will take care of it. It's actually almost a direct quote from Psalm 55:22 that says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. A time when David wrote that after he had been betrayed by someone he trusted. Then he says, In the midst of that, I am going to give it to the Lord. And here's what I'll tell you. If you have... A play, come to a place in your life, you don't know who you can trust. You don't know where to, you can trust someone. You can cast your cares on the Lord because He cares for you. The second thing it tells us, not only He will never fail you when you bear your burdens or when you cast your burdens on Him, but also it tells us He will heal our hurts. Verse 10 says, The God of all grace who calls you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you had suffered a little while. Now, this to be very specific what's happening here. What's happening here is that Paul, uh, Peter is saying to this group, even if your suffering ends in death. Now, when he says suffer a little while, he is not trying to downplay their suffering at all. He is just saying in comparison to what glory is going to be like and eternity will be like, it will seem like a small thing. But what he says here is that even if you suffer unto the point of death, is the idea behind this verse, that God will call you, first of all, we'll talk about this in a minute, to his eternal glory in him. But it also says he will restore, establish, strengthen, and support. Four synonyms that all mean the same thing, and that is that he is going to make it right. He is going to completely heal. He is going to take the damage of your life and make it as if it was never there. He will restore you completely. He will change you into the vision that He has and He will heal your hurts. Maybe you're there wherever you are today watching. 
that someone, something, some entity has hurt you and it is painful and you need healing. The promise of the Lord is this, that when you trust in Him, He will heal your hurts. That may not happen at this moment. You may not be able to wake up tomorrow morning and never feel it again. He could and he may. It may be down the line or it may be on the next side of eternity. But he will heal your hurt. And the third thing it tells us is not only will he bear our burdens, not only heal our hurts, but it tells us he will complete his work. It says this right there in verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. The idea here is that he will take care of us regardless of what happens in our lives. He will finish his work in our lives and in restoring the earth to its perfect glory. He will take care of us. When I thought about that, I couldn't help but think about Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse that we all love and know, those of us that have been a part of a church, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. But we often forget what verses 29 and 30 say or what happens after that because it reminds us that those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters of Christ. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. So he has made us right. That has already happened. And then just as confidently as he says that when you accept the calling of God to receive the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ, it says those he justified, he also glorified. Which means that he is going to make it all good. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion. And one day he will set everything right in your life and in this world. And in that hope we live. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say, What then are we to say about these things of God's for us? Who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son. He sent his son to die for us. And then he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, absolutely not. Because we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. He says in all these things, even though we are sheep in the midst of a dangerous world with a prowling lion who could devour us, we know that Christ is that barrier that stands between us, that prevents us, and we can be confident in that. He says in all these things we are conquerors through Him who loved us. I am persuaded in your death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. To God be the glory. And so we live with that understanding. We are sheep in a sinful fallen world with a a lion looking to devour us. But we have a God who will never fail us. He will bear our burdens. He will heal us our afflictions, and He will finish 
what he started. And because of that, Peter tells them, live like nobody else. In fact, he says this when he talks about who's bringing the letter. He says, I wrote this letter to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God. Live as if Jesus died for you and rose again. And let the world know what that looks like. That means that we replace worry and fear with hope. This whole book, the theme running through it, is a living hope in Christ Jesus. Even though it's scary out there, even though it's easy to get concerned, even though you look and there just seems to be a heaviness in our nation right now. There is a weight in our nation right now. We know that God will bear our burdens, will finish His work, and because of that we are going to live confidently in the midst of that, without worry, without fear, but we are going to live with hope. That doesn't mean that we don't look at the situation and say, how can we improve it? How can we make it better? It doesn't mean that we don't take precautions in our own lives, that we make sure things are taken care of, but it means that we don't live in fear and worry. We live in hope. Standing in God's grace means that we resist the devil. The first thing we got to do is acknowledge that he's there. Usual suspects, one of those lines at the end says the greatest trick the devil ever played on the world was to convince them that he never existed. We have to understand there are spiritual things behind everything we see physically that we need to understand the spiritual warfare that is raging around us and we must be aware of it. We must be sober and alert and ready for it. And then when we are confronted by it, we resist the evil one in being used by him. And then the last thing is we persevere even in difficulty. No matter what's happening around us. We keep going. We keep moving. We keep living towards that goal and that future undeterred by the situation around us. Confident in the God who has saved us. He is our living hope. I don't know where you are today and I don't know where you are on the fear and worry scale or where you are in the living life for the Lord and what stage you're in. But here's what I know. And I cannot imagine living through the world in which we find ourselves right now without the hope of Jesus Christ. I read yesterday a post from Tony Dungy, former coach, NFL football coach, who Many of you know, leads ministries now in the Tampa area. And he gave a great description of the injustice that he saw in Minneapolis with George Floyd. And he talked about the, the, the need to, to protest what happened with George Floyd, but that the protest had moved in a direction that wasn't honoring. And in the midst of all of that, he basically says, and if you do not have your hope placed in Jesus Christ. Now is the time. And so let me ask you, is that who you are? What you do? Have you put your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ? In a moment I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back and lead us in a time of reflection and response. And I want you to respond in that moment. It looks different. There's no aisle to walk down. I'm not going to be standing 
at your house at the TV to receive you in that way. But it's not important where I am or where you are. What's important is that you're responding to the Lord, our living hope. And so in just a moment when I pray, I'm just going to ask you to respond as the Lord leads you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to simply trust in you, to cast our burdens upon you, to trust that you're going to heal all our diseases, our afflictions. You're going to take care of that, our hurts. And Lord, that you're going to finish what you've started with us. And so Lord, I pray that right now, as people are watching in their homes and around their tables, with their families or by themselves, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts about the changes that need to happen in our lives to show the hope that is in a part of living for you. That no matter what the circumstances are, Lord, we know that we have you. And because of that, it is well with our souls. Lord, I pray if there are those that do not have a relationship with you, never accepted you as their Savior, they haven't had their sins forgiven, that right now, Lord, you would make that clear to them. And Lord, that in these moments, Lord, that they would seek you out. Lord, I pray even if there is someone today that is ready to accept you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would just make this moment a holy moment and do exactly that. They would just admit to you right now that they are a sinner. Or somebody that has not just done bad things occasionally, but that their heart bends towards that, that their attitudes do. And Lord, because of that, they are not perfect, and because they're not perfect, they can't have a relationship with you. But Lord, today, I pray that they would admit to you their sinfulness, but then believe in your Son, Jesus, as the Savior of the world, one lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, and rose again on the third day. And Lord, that they would confess right now that they need you and ask you to save them, ask you to cleanse them of their sin, ask you to give them a new heart, a new life. I pray, Lord, for those that are already followers that may need to make adjustments, may need to seek you more, Lord, that you would make that real in their lives right now. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If the Lord's moving in your life in any way, maybe you accepted the Lord for the very first time, or or perhaps there's some other decision you need to make or question you have, I'd love for you to connect with us. A couple of ways. If you're watching on Facebook, you can leave in the comments there if you feel comfortable with that, or send us a private message, or wherever you're watching, you can go to fbcgillisville.com slash connect. There's a card there. You can fill it out. There's a place at the bottom you can ask and comment. You can check mark something that says you'd like to have more information about the church or ask about Jesus more. We'd love to know what God's doing in your life. As we continue in worship today, declaring that no matter what's happening in our life, we will trust in the Lord.